Beloved congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, life is so simple, and yet it is so hard. The scripture tells us, love God, love your neighbor. What could be more simple than that? Love God, love your neighbor. Two sentences. How hard can that be? And yet as we examine our reflection in the mirror of God's law, we see that in ourselves, by nature, as fallen sinners, we don't stand a chance. We can't even begin to do what God simply requires of us. And the Apostle James tells us, doesn't he, in his epistle, that when we break one of the commandments, we break them all. So how we need, how we need to go back time and time again to the gospel which is sealed onto our foreheads by a holy baptism. How we need to remember what God has stamped onto our bodies by the sign and seal of the covenant. Our baptism preaches the gospel to us. And it tells us that united to Christ by faith, we share in the washing of his blood and the renewing power of his spirit. And so when the law comes to accuse us, we flee to Christ and we flee to the gospel as it's signified and sealed and preached to us. And we know that we're not only forgiven, but we're also transformed more and more. And so the law is no longer an enemy. It's no longer an accuser and a judge, which terrifies us. But for those who can say with the apostle, it is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. For the believer, the judge, has turned in to a good friend and a guide. And we can sing like we did this morning with the psalmist in Psalm 119. We can sing of how much we love God's law. It's not a terror. It's a delight. It shows us the way of life and joy in God's service. Now, we've confessed in earlier Lord's Days that the commandments are divided into two parts. The the first table which talks about the duties we owe to God, and the second table, the duties we owe to our neighbor. And the, the first commandment of that second table is before us today. This is the first commandment on that table, which has to do, do with the duties that we owe to our neighbor. And there's a certain connection between this commandment, the first of the second table, to the first commandment on the first table of the law. The first commandment on the first table, the duties we owe to God, exposes the rebellion and the revolutionary attitude of fallen sinners. The sinner says, any God but the true God. And as Calvin often says in his writings, the heart of the fallen sinner is an idol factory. So the very first commandment in the law, the first commandment on the first table, it tells us that we as sinners are desperately mixed up when it comes to authority, 
when it comes to submitting to the only absolute authority that exists, and that is God. And now as we come to the second table, the very first commandment here also deals with how mixed up sinners are with respect to authority. This time with respect to human authorities that God has set over us as his ministers. So sinners who live in revolution against God's sovereign kingship will also therefore rail against and despise all derived authority given by God to those whom he calls to be his ministers in human government. Now that's a problem. When the sinner goes against the very structure of reality, that is a problem. Because God created the world as an intricate, sophisticated system. Under his sovereign kingship, governed by different authorities that he appoints in different spheres, the family, the church, the the school, work, the city, the province, the nation. There is a glorious unity in diversity in God's created order. Everything and everyone in their place, cheerfully submitting to one another, fulfilling their task and office as willingly and cheerfully as the angels in heaven. And this is glory. It's an intricate clockwork where every piece is beautifully designed to work together well with the others, and the whole thing just brings glory to God. It's beautiful. And that's the DNA of the kingdom of heaven. That's the DNA of the universe as as God made it. It works. It fits together. Everything, everyone plays their part. And it brings glory to him. But the DNA of the kingdom of darkness is revolution. It's turning the world upside down. For the fallen sinner, everyone wants to be subversive. Being subversive is cool. Not accepting our place, our office, our calling. The sinner wants no part in those things. The sinner wants autonomy. The sinner wants self-sufficiency. And other people or institutions who dare to have any influence or to be responsible for any decisions that have to do with my life, they're just another brick in the wall. They're in my way. They close me in. They cramp my style. And the sinner says, I don't want that. I am the master of my fate. I am the captain of my soul. No one tells me what to do. Those are the words of the sinful and rebellious heart. No one tells me what to do. Have those words ever crossed your lips? pretty sure they've crossed mine. But it's not the way that children of God are supposed to speak, is it? 
You see, no one tells me what to do. That's what the devil said to God. When he fell, when he rebelled, and that's what the devil incites human beings to say to God and to the authorities that he appoints. The devil wants to make people believe that by rejecting and railing against authority, they are truly free. But what sinners don't realize and don't want to acknowledge is that by idolizing autonomy and thinking that they run their own lives, they're actually slaves to their own passions and desires and thus slaves to the devil himself. He has them right where he wants them. And we see the fruit of this false gospel of human autonomy and revolution all around us. It's not a new thing. If we look at, for instance, the first chapter of the letter of Paul to the Romans, Paul speaks about that. He speaks about the sinner, the ungodly, the unrighteous, verse 18, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. The creation itself declares God is to be worshipped. God is the creator. God is the almighty. God is the one who is sovereign and must be obeyed. And the unrighteous know that. Even if they've never cracked open a Bible, they know there is a God. They know there is a creator. But look at verse 21. Though they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. But they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. That's the unrighteous, suppressing the truth. The truth, all you need, my brother, my sister, all you need is one cell. That's it, one cell. Just one cell on the human body put under a microscope. And that world of intricate design just screams creator, glorious, sovereign, almighty creator. There is no explanation whatsoever from the atheist to explain that glorious created sophistication in just one cell. And they know that, but they suppress the truth in unrighteousness. And the reason is, I don't want God as my creator, because if God is my creator, then he runs the show, then he's in charge, and then I have to bow the knee and confess the name. I have to listen. I have to obey. And that revolution, that rebellion against God, drives evolutionary science in its philosophy. It's driven very much by a belief system, or better stated, a system of unbelief. And if you keep reading in Romans chapter 1, well, that has consequences. When we reject the Creator, we reject His created ordinances. We begin to worship parts of the creation and creatures, and that has all kinds of foul and perverse consequences. I don't accept God as creator, so I don't accept God's creational norms. And I say no to the biblical ordinance of marriage between a man and a woman, because I will not accept God's authority. Not as God says, but as I want. Not as God says, 
but as my emotions tell me and my desires lead me. And so we live in a society where sexual activity between any number and combinations of persons is good and holy and to be celebrated. We live in a society which more and more is in revolt against the Creator and against the structure of reality itself as it's revealed in the creation. And what Paul describes here in in the end of the chapter uh, actually goes even further in our days because we have modern medical technology which allows the sinner to go to extremes which the apostle Paul could never have imagined. And that's why they're not written there in Romans chapter 1. Because I don't accept God as my creator. I don't accept God's creational norms for marriage and family. But today we have the sinner saying, I also refuse to accept any limits assigned to me at birth. If I want to identify as a female, then I revolt against the biological truth which is stamped and written into every cell of my body which says that I'm male. Not as God made me, but as I want to remake myself. And that's the culture of revolution against God's authority in which we live. And we see the brokenness, the pain, the shame, and the grief that it brings, and that it is bringing more and more. Well, here's the good news. What does the Lord Jesus say after his resurrection? He comes to his disciples and he tells them, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. So go make disciples, baptizing them into the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey all that I have commanded you. The world has been under the occupying forces of the kingdom of darkness and revolution for so long. But now the gospel goes forth. The kingdom of God advances with power. And that kingdom is that rock cut without human hands, which rolls and rolls and destroys all the kingdoms of the the world and finally grows and grows till it fills the entire earth. And in the kingdom of heaven, in the kingdom of our Lord Jesus Christ, the kingdom which has no end, in that kingdom... God is putting things back in their place. God is putting people back in their place. God is renewing and healing the brokenness caused by our rejection of the structure of reality. Now, as Christians... We are surrounded by this frothing and violent ocean of revolution against God. It's all around us. There's revolution against God, against His will revealed in creation, and against His Word. And so it's important, it's vital that we as sons and daughters of the King, it's vital that we learn the truth that we learn and teach each other the real reality, the only way to live, not revolution, not rebellion, but reverence, honor, 
love and faithfulness. And that teaching, that learning starts at home. The fifth commandment is the first commandment in that second table of the law, which deals with the duties that we owe to our neighbor. And when you're born, the very first neighbor that you meet is your mom and your dad. Those are our first neighbors. And it's to them, it's with them that we practice the instruction of the law to love our neighbor as ourselves. And this commandment, children, places a crown on the head of your mom and dad. They are king and queen to whom honor, love, and faithfulness and submission and obedience is owed. I want to draw your attention to the fact that the commandment speaks of father and mother. And you may notice that when I read the commandments, I often pause and emphasize the mother. I don't just read father and mother real quick, but I emphasize the fact that God calls us to honor father and mother. And this is important. There are some headship proponents out there that may call themselves Christians or even Reformed that have such a warped understanding of Christian and biblical headship that they end up teaching that the husband should treat his wife as just one more of the children. And that is a perverse thing, as if he holds the authority in the family and the wife is lumped in together with the children. That's not the biblical picture of marriage and authority in the home at all. We ought to show honor, love, and faithfulness to our father and mother. That is a a team. They're the king and the queen of the home. Now, I don't know if this example is going to work because I don't know how much knowledge some of us have of, of the way the Canadian military chain of command is set up, but let's give it a try here. In the Canadian military, there are two hierarchies, two chains of command. There are the commissioned officers and the non-commissioned officers, and they both have their own structures. And so at a platoon level, which would be one of the smaller groups of soldiers, you would often have, let's say, a a lieutenant or a captain and a sergeant. The the lieutenant is the commissioned officer. The sergeant is the non-commissioned officer. And there is a structure of... uh, uh, chain of command there, the the sergeant has to salute the commissioned officer, the commissioned officer, the buck stops with him, he is the one or she is the one that deals with the chain of command above. But in a well-functioning platoon, the commissioned officer and the non-commissioned officer, the lieutenant and the sergeant, work together as a team because the officer is more dealing with the administrative and the strategic uh, aspect, whereas the NCO, the non-commissioned officer, deals with the, the men, with the troops, with taking care of them, making their equipped, and making sure that they're ready and dealing directly with them. And so it works well when there's a mutual respect and they work together recognizing and valuing the different roles that they have. And it would be a foolish lieutenant that would try to uh, govern his troop without respecting his NCO. That just doesn't 
work. Well, maybe that helps, maybe that doesn't. That's the way that Christian or biblical marriage is set up. Man and woman together work as a team. Yes, the man, says the scripture, is the head of the wife. There is a a command, a chain of command built into that. But the two of them together are the authority in the family. And so biblically, if we want our children to show honor and love and faithfulness, then we need to model that as father and mother to each other. It means that we ought not to undermine the other parent's authority or respect. It means we need to back up each other's discipline. It means that if we have a problem with what mom said or with what the husband said and their decision with respect to the children, that we don't hammer that out between us in front of the children, but that in front of the kids we maintain each other's decisions and speak in private if we have a different opinion. And so fathers, you need to make a huge deal out of it if a child disrespects his mother. That should be absolutely forbidden in the family. And mothers, you ought to severely correct any child that disrespects by words or by actions the father. That's what God calls us to do to keep the fifth commandment. If we turn to Ephesians chapter 6, we see that, as we already read, and as I already mentioned before we read it, we see that Paul is applying the transforming power of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ to the structures of authority in society, specifically here in the beginning of the chapter, to the family, to children, and to parents. The family is where it all begins. The family is the smallest building block of society. As the family goes, so goes society. And so here in the family, we grow up and we learn from childhood what authority is, how to respect it, how to honor it, or not. It's a huge responsibility that we have, parents, because the children either learn or they don't learn, depending on how we are carrying out our task faithfully. Now, the the commandment says that we ought to honor our father and mother. And the word honor in the scripture has the sense of making something heavy or weighty, like gold. It's it's, it's valuable. Now, how do we show that honor? Well, look at what the apostle says. Chapter 6, verse 1 of Ephesians. Children, obey your parents. You want to honor your parents? It's not just by talking about it, but it's by doing It's by doing what they tell us to do. That's honoring parents. It's like the Lord Jesus says about our relationship to him. If you love me, you will keep my commands. And if we love our parents, if we honor our parents, if we're faithful to our parents, we obey them. Now, parents, that means that we need to be giving what? Good instruction and discipline. The scripture does not tell our children to honor, love, and obey our whims as parents. The scripture does not tell us that we can be little tyrants in our houses, that we can demand that everything is just the way we want things, and that we can absolutely lose it on our children when we don't get our way. That's not what our children should be learning. 
Our children should not be learning that to survive in life, to avoid yelling and pain, I must avoid at all costs irritating mom and dad. That's not what the commandment calls us as parents to teach. In fact, scripturally, tyranny and abuse of any type are sin also against the fifth commandment. And God will judge parents and every authority which is corrupt and which abuses office and which gets the mistaken notion that the authority invested in them is for them to promote their desires and to achieve what they want. That's not at all a biblical view of authority and office. What is the biblical view? Well, the biblical view we see in Romans chapter 13, if we turn there very quickly, Romans 13, you'll notice what the the apostle says, verse 1, let every person be subject to the governing authorities. Why? For there is no authority except from God. Every authority, starting with mom and dad, and going up to the highest uh, authorities in the land, they are from God. Those that exist, says the apostle, have been instituted by God. Why? For what reason? Well, look at verse 4. So that people will do what is good, because the authorities are God's servants for our good, servants of God to encourage us in good and to punish us and avenge God's wrath on the wrongdoer. That's verse 4. And then we see in verse 6 another aspect to what he says about authority. He says, because of this, you also pay taxes for the authorities are ministers of God. The word minister means servant. So every authority, beginning with mom and dad, the teachers at school, the elders in the church, the counselors from the municipality, the MLAs and the MPs and the cabinet and the prime minister, all of these things, all of these offices are instituted by God and are ministers of God. He, he has chosen, he has decreed to rule us and govern us through these people. And so why and how should we teach our children obedience? Well, we have to inculcate into their little heads that they don't have to listen to us, to what our desires are, and our wants. We don't control their little lives. They're not our little slaves to do our whims and to keep us happy and that we can explode at when we don't get our way with them, when they don't listen to us. No, we instruct our children in obedience because we say, children, God has placed me here for your good, to encourage you in doing what is right. And to correct you when you go on the wrong way. And so God has given mom and dad to you as an authority for your well-being, for your life, for your thriving, for your flourishing. And the way we discipline our children, the way we correct our children, the way we teach our children needs to make it very clear that they don't have to listen to us because we're us. But that when we speak good and life-giving instruction to them, This is God himself who is governing them by our hand. So what do we do, children, when sometimes 
our parents don't give us good instruction and discipline. The Catechism tells us, honor your father and mother. The commandment means we have to submit with due obedience to their good instruction and discipline. What happens when the instruction isn't good? What happens when mom and dad are unfair? What happens when they make a decision and you think, you know what, I don't think that's right. What do we do? Well, the Catechism speaks about that. We need to have patience with their weaknesses and shortcomings. Sometimes parents lose their temper. Sometimes parents make up a decision which isn't really fair in the moment because they don't have all the facts. Sometimes they're a little bit impatient with us. And the Scripture teaches us to have patience with our parents and with other authorities that God has put over us. When they, when they make a misstep, when they speak a word out of turn, when they have a reaction which is not the best reaction they should have, then we need to show love and patience with their weaknesses and shortcomings. But there's the other side to that too. Then parents need to have the humility to know how to ask forgiveness from their children. Have you ever asked your children for forgiveness when you've made a mistake, when you've sinned against them and against God by being unfair or unjust or, or misusing your office to get your way instead of giving them good instruction and discipline in the fear of the Lord, when you've provoked your children to anger? Part of modeling Christ to our children is that we show them that we're not afraid to recognize, confess, and repudiate our sins. And that can teach our children a lot when we have the courage to do it. You know, sometimes it's hard to submit ourselves to authorities that are human, that are frail, that have weaknesses, and sometimes, quite honestly, can, can make us upset and even angry. And then we have to meditate on our Lord Jesus. What does the, the Scripture say about our Lord Jesus in Luke chapter 2, verse 51? He went back from the, from the temple in Jerusalem. He went back with Mary and Joseph, and he was subject to them. Jesus obeyed his parents, two sinners. They made mistakes. I'm sure that sometimes when the chores were being handed out, the Lord Jesus ended up with more work than his brother. But he was subject to them. He was patient with their weaknesses and shortcomings. When we listen to our parents' good instruction and discipline, we listen to God. And when we listen to God, this means life. It goes well with you, says the commandment. Because listening to God is what we were created to do. When we listen to God, when we listen to him through the authorities he's placed in our lives, we take our place in this glorious, intricately designed universe where every creature and every person and everything breaks out into glorious praise and worship as we be who he has made us to be, as we do what he has made us to do. And when we learn this at home, then we take that knowledge with us out into society. We learn how to function at school, how to respect the teachers. 
We learned that at church, how to respect the elders. At work, how to respect our boss. In the community, how to respect the police. And in the nation, how to respect the prime minister, his cabinet, and the government. And the enemy knows how important the family is in the formation of faithful, God-honoring people that respect authority that comes from him. The devil knows that the family is a vital, key aspect to this training. And that's why, if if you've noticed this, that's why the devil is doing everything he can to destroy the family, to reshape marriage and to reshape the family, to intrude on parents' responsibilities, to intrude into the sphere of authority of the church. The goal of the enemy is that the state ends up as the absolute authority with all authority in heaven and on earth, and that every individual is directly dependent upon the state for everything concerning body and soul. That's where the enemy wants to have things. So how do we fight against that revolutionary movement? How do we stand up against it? Well, brothers and sisters, we don't barricade railroad tracks. We're more likely to be found washing people's feet. We follow the one that says, I came to serve, not to be served. That's how authority and leadership works in the kingdom of light. We don't seek to impose our will on the government and on society, but we seek to follow our master, and we love, and we serve, and we speak words of of life. We hold to this theme in the kingdom, not by might, not by power, but by my spirit. And so we don't use violence, either real or virtual. We don't trash authorities on social media. We don't pervert their names and change them to be mocking names and despise them and speak ill of them. That's not who we are. That's not what we do. Because Christians don't turn the world upside down. Christians don't celebrate revolution. Christians celebrate renewal. Christians celebrate the Spirit putting things back the right way. And so how do we fight against the spirit of revolution in the age in which we live? We fight it this way. We live life to the fullest. We live life as it's meant to be lived. We find holy joy in our marriages. And with great zeal, we care for and cultivate and educate our families. We raise our children in the fear of the Lord. That's what it is to be anti-revolutionary. We live life according to the real reality, according to the way God made things to be. So, brother and sister... As you fight the revolutionary spirit of our time, that means you need to spend the time necessary. You need to allocate your resources accordingly. This church has a lot of children, a lot of little children growing up. And we need to, we need to know that just like the elders on that great and final day, they're watching over our souls as those men that will have to give an account before the Lord Jesus Christ. So you parents... When the Lord comes back, we'll require an accounting of what you have done to fulfill faithfully your task. That means we need to prioritize 
the instruction and the training of our children in the fear of the Lord. This is work which has consequences for this life and for the next. Good instruction and discipline, even in all weakness, it's sanctified by the blood of Christ. And through that good instruction and discipline, we bring up children in the fear of the Lord, children of whom it can be said, it will be well with them. They will live long. They will live forever in the land God is giving us. When the, when the power of the Spirit of Christ transforms our power structures from selfish and rebellious and self-serving and tyrannical into pure, unconditional, and sacrificial mutual love, then our families and our congregations will be islands of sanity in a world increasingly, which has increasingly lost its grip on reality. And that, brother and sister, will be one of the most powerful tools to call people from darkness into his marvelous light, to call people from being revolutionaries into being reverent subjects of the King of Kings. Amen.